Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And welcome back to the House of Pod. My name is Kave Hoda. God, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm going to be your host today for this fun little medical podcast. To join me as guest co-host is a friend of mine who many of you have met, or heard at least, met in the listening sense, the podcast listener sense, my friend, Mark Gassaway. Mark, how are you, buddy? I'm doing fine. How's everybody out there doing, cats and kittens? Hope you're having a great day. Hope you're having a great holiday season. I hope that you hire a lot of musicians for your parties. Mark is a musician, a fantastic one at that. Hire musicians for your parties if you have the opportunity. It is worth it. It is such a nice little touch of class to have a live musician at an event. God, Mark, um, uh, you know, I've known you for years now. Mm -hmm. Something I don't know. Coming up um, on, wow, holy crap, coming up on 30 years. It's a long time. We met in 1995. We met when we were three. Um, That's not true. Don't check the math on that, people. We're not that old. Mark, where does, because it's Christmas time, it's Christmas time. Where does Christmas rank in your pantheon of holidays? Uh, Ignoring uh, religions and denominations. Mm-hmm. Uh. I have always liked Christmas. I've always liked the end of the year holidays. I think that there's something cozy about, uh, I mean, the fact that it's happening during the winter time. And due respect to the people who are like, uh, um, who, oh, you can definitely edit out all of this stammering. It stays uh, in. Yeah. Stays this in. Is, let this be a lesson to you, George. Like if you stammer, this stuff can get cut out. Our editing machine broke. People who hire are, a guy, we can't afford yeah. an editor anymore. So this all so everybody stupid. always talks about how it's like, oh, New Year's resolutions are bullshit, and it's like I actually think that um, there is, I, I, you know, 
Like the, the fact that we're even calling today Sunday was just a decision that somebody made at some point. And it's like, don't be a, you know, whatever. Don't be a grouch about this stuff. And like em- embrace the, the transition from one year to the next. Um. Okay. I don't know if I totally understood that. that. Why I was stammering through it. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about, but okay, I have, you, I have going to raise all of this stuff. Um, you know, absolutely not. Absolutely not. But I do have a question. You, you, you mentioned taking, you had that qualification taking out, the the religious aspect of it what did you mean by that do you mean that you have religious holidays that you put ahead of christmas or do you feel like if you don't look at it as a religious holiday christmas is pretty awesome oh um that i being the child of uh parents of two different religions am inclined to see the good sides in both of them and uh i'm not one of those people who is kind of like he said happy holidays to me what the hell yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, and those two religions, one is one of those is Judaism and the other is Satanism, right? Uh yes. Actually, one of them is Scientology and the other one is Mooniism. <laughs> you are from LA, it's possible. Um, Mark, today we're gonna talk because you are oh god, I'm so sorry, a fun guy. We're gonna talk about fungal infections, my man. I'm so sorry. I'm I'm so 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 sorry, everyone. I'm sighing as audibly as I can because this is radio and people can't see me like holding my hands to my face. I, I he is he is face palming very hard right now. Um, so sorry. Today we're going to talk about fungal infections. To do that, we brought on someone. You mentioned his first name. His full name is Doctor George Thompson. He is a professor of medicine. At UC Davis, an institution I love and hold dear, he is he has a uh, joint appointment in internal medicine, division of infectious disease, and the Department of Medical Microbiology and Immunology. Dr. George Thompson specializes in the care of patients with invasive fungal infections, which sounds really intense when you say it the way i just did he also has an interest in clinical trials fungal diagnostics and host immunogenetics dr thompson welcome to the show hey thanks so much for having me it's nice to meet both of you um can i call you george absolutely okay uh george i'm gonna refer to both of you as doctor as (laughs) (laughs) dr kave and dr george (laughs) george uh, let me ask you a question because there are a lot of sexy medicines out there. There's like people you'll go to a, you know, I was in medical school and you'd be at like a bar and you'd be talking to someone and they'd be like, so what are you, what are you interested in with your, your medicine? They'd be like, yeah, yeah. And they'd be like, well, what, what, what about medicine? And I'd be like, well, uh, gastroenterology and hepatology. It's really exciting. It's the liver. It's the biliary system. And, and I imagine there are sexier forms of medicine than than the one I practice. Um, uh, do you feel like uh, studying fungus is the kind of thing that people find uh, sexy, or do you feel like that uh, you feel like uh, it, it's not so much? What how, what is it? What does it rank in the pantheon of cool uh, medicine? <laughs> yeah, we we definitely think a lot of ourselves. I guess I mean we're a little bit more like that line from Ghost, Ghostbusters, right? Where he's like, "Do you want to see my collection of molds, germs, and spores?" <laughs> um, that doesn't usually grab the attention of everybody right away, but 
you know, that's an area of medicine that's really been understudied. It's, it's still a huge problem for our patients and, and lots of exciting things are happening in the field. So it's a good, it's a good time and, and era to study fungal diseases. Um, let me ask you this. What, what drew you to studying fungal infections? What was it? Cause you go to infectious disease first, I assume. And then from there, you probably found your way to fungal infections. How did that happen? Yeah, my story starts even earlier than that. So when I was an undergraduate at the University of Missouri, we had a big outbreak of a fungal infection called histoplasmosis, um, which is a fungus that lives in the soil and primarily in the Midwest and the U.S., but but is global uh, in spread. And I thought, what is that? You know, I didn't really know much about it, knew I wanted to go to medical school, but that sort of captured my interest ever since that time that we didn't know enough about fungal infections and I needed to try and help some of that out. You know, try to try to increase our our understanding of the diseases. Oh, uh, let me ask you this: so, in the world of infectious disease, um, wh- what's the hierarchy of cool there? I'm not going to use Pantheon three times in the same episode. Where, what is the um, hierarchy of cool, and where does fungal infections rank in that in terms of other infectious diseases? Yeah, I think if you ask all of us, you're going to get different answers, right? Like we think we're the most fun to be around. Uh, you know, the virologists have their own opinions about what's going to destroy mankind and that they're the most important. Um, and the truth is, we kind of need all of the different areas. Right. But but um, and maybe you can tell I'm avoiding your question. George, you can <laughs> talk. Sh- you can talk shit about the virologist. It's cool, man. Nobody. No, I, uh, I mean, everybody has sort of their their different characters in their field. Right. George, you're very diplomatic. And I love that. Um, <laughs> Mark, let me ask you, Mark. Uh where, I mean, when you hear uh, that he studies fungal infections or when you hear about fungal infections, what what do you what comes to mind? What as a non-doctor do you think about or know about fungal infections? I mean, just I don't have a whole lot of familiarity with fungal infections. I get I I feel like you hear about other kinds of infections more frequently. Uh, yeah. and so I wonder how one would even acquire one. I also, you know, am a person who played the video game and watched the series of the last of us, which centered around, uh, you know, a, a, a fungal infection gone global and evil. And so I, I was, my ears perked up when you talked a moment ago about, um, uh, you and the, the viral doctors figuring out what it is that's going to take down mankind. Are we getting close to that? A good is question. the situation changing? These are the things that occur to me. That's a really good question. Let's talk about The Last of Us, because I think that is how, I mean, you must, do you, what do you, do you fucking hate it, George? Is it like a love-hate relationship <laughs> with The Last of Us? Because no, it makes any people, attention any, is good attention for us. We we love it. Okay. Do you, how accurate was it? Let's 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 talk about it. So the the basic recap, as Mark said, is this is the future. There is a fungus that takes over, um, basically as an infectious uh, sort of zombie infection. Basically, it takes over people's bodies and controls their brains. Um, and they they at least in the show, I never played the game, but at least in the show, they kind of tried to play a little bit of the science behind it. Is any of it accurate? Is there anything in there that you're actually like, oh well, this actually is a really interesting take that they have on it is there anything like that yeah i mean so to give kind of a a big picture right so there's there's thought to be over a million different fungal pathogens around the world right you know the vast majority of those live in the soil you're never going to see them and only a couple hundred cause infection in people 
And the reasons for that are, is what's been really proposed is this, you know, human body temperature has evolved specifically to be what it is to protect us against the vast majority of those fungi. They can't grow at our body temperature. You know, they infect plants, which are obviously much lower temperature than, than we are or other mammals. And then if you go up a little bit, insects, you know, are a further bottleneck. Um, and that's what this cordyceps from The Last of Us is really based on is this, you know, ant um, uh a fungal infection that these ants get, and it sort of even changes their behavior. Um, but, but you know, for that to jump all the way up to our human body temperature, I think is not certainly something we're going to see in our lifetime. Uh, that's a that's a huge barrier to jump up that many degrees for the growth of these different organisms. But, but with climate change, we are seeing, um, you know, more fungal infections. We've seen some new fungi emerge that are causing global, you know, problems. So Canada RS is one of those. We really didn't see infections at all before 2009. So that's now causing big outbreaks in nursing homes and skilled nursing facilities and even in the hospital. And then another one called Sporothrix, which is in Brazil, looks like it has changed quite a bit and has gone from sort of a plant-loving organism to it's evolved. And now cats basically carry that on their claws. So it, it survives at this much higher temperature. So there are some you know, predecessors to show that these fungi are evolving you know, just over the last 10 to, 10 to 20 years. But for a big jump like insect to humans, that's that's a super fun show. But like, I just, I don't buy it, right? It's just mm -hmm. something to be enjoyed, but not worried about. I, I have a, a, a quick question. Uh, is is it that there are new funguses like appearing in, in the wild that didn't exist before? Or are old ones getting stronger? Yeah, I think that... Uh, the word strong is always hard to define in medicine, right? Like, you know, our patients have weakened immune systems. So is that why it appears the organism is stronger? But these are fungi that have been around, but they seem to have picked up some new tricks. Like they're able to invade new species, new tricks, or they're able to do more damage, new tricks? I think both. So to use Canada RS as an example, it's RS named after the ear, and it was just found in an ear sample in Japan in 2009, and invasive infections, like infections in the body, in the bloodstream, really weren't described at that time. Even people who have freezers full of isolates from a long time ago, you know, they pull everything out of the freezer and look at it again to make sure they didn't miss it, and it's not there. Mm -hmm. So we have newly seen that particular fungus cause bloodstream infections. Yeah, but that particular uh, fungals had been in the environment and on skin services probably for a long time. How, you know, we talk about this a lot on the show, like how sometimes even though we have no interest in doing it, it is very hard to extricate medical opinion from sometimes politics. When you say things like we're seeing new things and we think they're related to global warming, do you find yourself getting into debates about that? Do you find people... Um, being upset about that? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, that word climate change for some folks is politically charged for whatever reason. Uh, I mean, it's pretty irrefutable that the earth is getting hotter. Uh, you know, people can argue about the what's contributing to that, I guess, but uh, it's clearly warming up, right? <laughs> so I think we just, we have to to face that and and sort of deal with the consequences. And you know, that's for other people to deal with what's going on in the environment. I'm mostly concerned with the downstream effect of what's what's causing problems in our patients. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a do you have a follow up on that? 
Oh, uh, actually, I did have a question because uh, I, I don't know if we're getting too in the weeds on like climate science here. But the other thing that uh, that I have read about over time is that not only are, um, you know, things that are already in the wild developing under a different uh, sort of heat index. The other thing that is happening is as the like polar ice melts, there are things that are inside that polar ice that are getting released. Is a is a fungus something that would be able to survive like sub-zero temperatures inside of ice? And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, here's this completely new thing that hasn't been around since the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, fungi form spores, which are incredibly hardy and can survive for a long time. How long I think is a bit undefined. We've we've tried to get access to some ice samples so far and not been real successful. Th those are obviously in high demand, right? There's not a lot of those, um, but they do give us a real portrait of the past. I mean, you could drill down a couple thousand feet and collect ice samples from you know hundreds of thousands of years ago, and we'd love to look at those. I have read that looking at viruses, a group has revived one of these ancient viruses in the lab. Good. I, I think it's like we <laughs> didn't ever Good. read any of Michael Crichton's books, right? The Andromeda <laughs> yeah. strain we've ignored, but because um, things like that are a risk. So, you know, I, I have sort of mixed feelings about that. Scientifically, I find it super fascinating, um, but I'm also uh, very cognizant after we just all live through this pandemic, right? We need to be pretty careful with, with biosafety and, and what we have access to and um, how things are looked at in the lab so that we don't cause a pandemic. Speaking of labs and the intricacies around them, you are a very prominent figure, not just in the field of you know infectious disease in general, but really in the study of coccidiomycosis. Can you tell us a little bit about coccidiomycosis, where you find it, what it does, why Mark, who lives in LA and commutes sometimes between here and Northern California, might need to be concerned about as he drives through Central California? Yeah, absolutely. So, so coccidioides is the fungus that causes the disease coccidioidomycosis, and it's what's called an endemic fungus. So I mentioned one of those earlier with histoplasmosis, but endemic fungi exist only in certain geographic regions for the most part. And coccidioides is for the most part only in the Southwest US, kind of scattered throughout Central and South America. Um, it likes sort of these, it has a real predilection for this sort of drought a precipitation cycle, which is common in the what was historically known as a Sonoran life zone. Um, and it exists as, as sort of a mold in the environment and with periods of drought forms spores. And then those are brought into the air by some mechanism, a windstorm, construction. Um, we take care of a lot of motocross folks that are out driving through dusty areas and get it. So they breathe in these spores and then in the body, it can it converts to sort of a yeast-like form, and that's what causes infection. So it grows in the environment, right, 30 degrees Celsius, and then in a human body, 37 degrees Celsius. So it's one of these that's figured that transition out from colder to warmer um, uh, sort of climates, I guess. Uh, and then it causes pneumonia for most people. They get fever, chills, their joints hurt, they have pneumonia, and then it's a, it's a pretty long illness. They have symptoms for months. Um, so, so if they're just on I-5 in California, we do see people really with no other exposure than, than driving on the highway. But I, I don't know, have we actually mentioned so far, because there are some people that aren't going to understand what the I-5 reference is. 
what we're talking it's, about is in the middle of the I-5 is a town called Coalinga, which is a big cattle town. And anybody that's ever driven up the five knows that there's this point in the middle of the drive when for like five to 10 minutes, you have to roll your windows up because you pass by just thousands and thousands of cows and the air is quite fragrant with their poop. You didn't say poop. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it's, it's that area that, that we're always concerned about. And that's why like whenever I used to drive down to LA back before I had a car with air conditioning and I would drive down the summer and I'd have to roll up the windows for a couple hours on that drive. It was fucking brutal. Um, so glad to have air conditioning in the car now. But uh, that's that's the reason, because it's out there in the air. And and other than the pneumonia, Dr. Thompson, George, because now we're homies, um, what else can coccidiomycosis do? Yeah, so um, in, in 3% or less of people, it will cause sort of long-term problems. So it can cause a chronic pneumonia, like pneumonia that doesn't ever go away. And some of those patients end up on antifungal treatment for years or even lifelong. And then in some patients, it actually will leave the lungs and go to the bone, the joints, the muscle, skin, or even cause meningitis. It'll go to the brain. And that's 100% lethal within two years without treatment. Um, and, and so those people, if we can get them under control with antifungals, they're on therapy for life. We consider it incurable. Um, so it's, it's a pretty devastating disease for our patients. Um, it also has a predilection for men in about a six to one ratio compared to women. It, uh, it likes testosterone. It can use it as a growth factor and carbon source. Um, and then it has a, uh, patients of Oceania or African genomic ancestry get worse disease. And that's not thought to be sociologic. We actually think it's genetic and we've, we've worked on the genetics of that quite a bit. And it, it looks like certain groups of people just don't respond to it as well from an immune standpoint regardless of where they're located when it hits them like you're saying somebody who's like samoan who lives in los angeles <laughs> is at a greater risk than other angelinos they, they are and um you know the it, it, we can't say it's like all samoan people right because just because you're from samoa doesn't mean your genetics and your your immunogenetics are identical to other people from samoa but it is an increased risk compared to other populations so so we do tend to follow those patients a lot more closely and for a longer period of time to make sure they're doing well. That's really interesting. And you said that, you know, you guys have looked at it to see if that might just be sociological issues, like economic issues, whatever, access to healthcare. And it seems like if you take into account all that stuff, it still seems they're more genetically predisposed to uh, worse infections. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think we have a precedent for that, right? We know that sickle cell was protective against malaria, right? But causes other problems. And then cystic fibrosis, which we don't talk a lot about, you know, why did that gene survive for so long? It seemed to be protective for salmonella, for typhoid historically. So there's lots of these examples in our genetics, but we don't really think about, you know, what happened a thousand years ago has sort of impacted gene pools today. Mm. Um, but it's pretty fascinating. I, I really enjoy reading about that. And, and we've, you know, we had noticed this association with uh, the sex disparity of bad coxie and then this genetic predisposition had also been noticed a long time ago. We, we really had done a lot of work with the NIH and the folks at University of Arizona to try to tease that all apart. For most people, when they get coccidiomycosis, do they need treatment or is it the kind of thing that's just like the body will manage and get rid of on its own? Um, or do most people need something? 
Yeah, so we know from some studies that were done before there are even antifungals available that we probably aren't speeding up the you know resolution of the disease with antifungals. Um, that said, if a patient comes to see me and they have symptoms, I try to put them on therapy because um, it might you know hasten the resolution of disease. But I, I haven't been able to prove that. We don't have a big enough study that shows that. But we know it doesn't necessarily pre prevent complications because I'm going to eventually stop their antifungals. But if they're a high risk group, it's just going to come back once we've stopped their therapy and we're going to have to start all over again. One more question for you about coccidiomycosis uh, or coxy, as the cool kids call it. Why is it so hard to study? Your lab is known as one of, I think, one of the few places, right, that can actually yeah. study this thing. Why mm -hmm. is that? Why is it so hard? Why can't every lab do it? Yeah, so, it, um, you know, so clinical labs, like if you have a culture and someone coughs up onto a plate, you know, it converts back from that yeast to the mold form. And the mold form is what's infectious once it starts making spores. So it puts the people in the lab at really high risk to acquire the disease. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like a bacteria on a plate where it's going to just kind of stay there. But, but you know, these airborne spores that come up from the plates can cause big outbreaks in labs. It's, it's, so it's very problematic. It's considered a, a biosafety level three pathogen. So when we work with the spores, we, we, it, we work in a, what's called a glove box. just like you've seen on television, right? It's a glass box with rubber gloves. You kind of put your hands through into the box, uh, which makes things very difficult to work with. It's slow. And, and not a lot of places even have the equipment to handle it in that fashion. So it's definitely slowed research down, makes it hard to work with. That is very interesting. Speaking of things that slow things down and are troublesome and everyone hates, stay tuned for some commercials. We'll be right back with Dr. George Thompson and my good friend, Mark Gasway. Lots of dick builds for you, my friend. <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Oh, we're back. What tasty and delicious commercials. I bought there. everything you told me to. Uh, I bought everything twice. Because I'm a good consumer of products and services and a good little capitalist, Mark. Thank you again for joining us. We're talking about fungal infections. Uh, Mark, you had a, a question here for the the good Dr. Thompson. Oh, yeah. Um, so penicillin is a fungus. Am I wrong? Penicillium, yeah. Yeah. Um, two, I guess two questions arise from that. The first is... Are fungal infections treated with other fungi? Okay, actually, screw it. Here's this question. I've literally heard the word fungi and fungi in this conversation. Can we settle this once and for all? So people in the field will say both. I say fungi, but uh, if you want to say fungi, that's totally fine too. Okay. There's no correct pronunciation, right? There's no right of initiation in our field. Okay. 
It's not like an octopi octopus thing where one of them is a word and the other one isn't. No, we we accept both. Okay, great. Yeah. Wait, okay. Wait, 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 wait. Real quick, how do you? What's the plural of octopuses? It's octopuses. Octopus. Okay. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Go on. Yeah. Uh, it's a completely different language system. Mm, okay. Big Latin thing. Anyway, so uh, I lost my train of thought. Um, I, I guess. Okay. I guess my question is, um, in terms of treatment or in terms of like co having like a good existence with the fungus around us or the fungi around us do do we look more at you know cultivating say strands of fungus that we can coexist with more peacefully or is the the goal to to cultivate uh other funguses that we can use to counteract the ones that are threats to us yeah, that that's a, that's an interesting question. I mean, um, you know, our our bodies are covered in living organisms, right? We we are all aware that we have bacteria on our skin and all throughout our gastrointestinal tract, right? Our mouth all the way through. But same for fungi. You know, we have candida on our skin all the time. We've got candida inside our uh, intestines all the time, and they're really of no consequence to us for the vast majority of people. Invasive fungal infections almost only happen when something's wrong, you know, so, so we mentioned sort of the exposures for sort of these endemic fungi, but things like candida almost only cause problems if you've had recent surgery, if you're on something that knocks down your immune system, if you're a leukemia patient in the hospital, right, we get in chemotherapy, those kind of things. That too typically get bad fungal infections. Um, so, you know, they're, they're probably protective for our skin, right? We've got a healthy amount of organisms on our skin that, that protect us and, and help break down different products that we eat. Um, so in those ways, they're, they're a benefit and they, they cause problems, not to say always, but, but generally only when something else has gone wrong. Speaking of candida, you mentioned that. I think it's time to get some listener questions in. And I usually don't go that this soon in the interview to listener questions, but when I solicited four questions for this episode, I feel like there was a lot of really interesting topics uh, here to discuss. And one of them comes from Karen Percy at Karen Percy one on Twitter. There's a lot of information I've read about misinformation. I'm sorry about curing candida and clearing up yeast that's talked about in the wellness space. What are the most troublesome and actually dangerous of these so-called cures? Now, I don't know, George, if mm -hmm. you have, you know, gone into those that wellness space because you're a real like scientist and doctor, not like a internet guy like myself. But have you looked at some of these cures, quote unquote cures for candida? Are they needed? <laughs> One, two, what are the ones that are the most dangerous? Yeah, we, we routinely see patients that have been referred for, you know, candida overgrowth syndrome and same things like that. And I do think that's probably a real phenomenon. That said, I think it's very rare. I think it's overdiagnosed. And I think that some of the treatments offered have been just drastic. Uh, for, for the vast majority of people, they're being scammed. You know, they're, they're spitting in something and sending it to a lab and they said, you have candida. Well, we all have candida in the mouth, right? Um, so I've seen people do a variety of things. Uh, I, I have kind of gone through some of the websites just to see what our patients are exposed to, um, some of which are very benign, and they put people on high-protein diets that are avoiding yeast, right? They're avoiding bread products and beer and alcohol, anything made with the yeast. 
they actually are probably healthier diets. They end up on kind of the Atkins diet as a whole. Mm. Um, but I've seen patients take that to extreme and lose a lot of weight. That's obviously very dangerous. Uh, I had a patient come in that was doing bleach baths daily. Um, and it asked if they could start drinking the bleach as well for fear of candida. So that that's obviously a terrible idea. Um, so we have seen some real problems with this, um, you know, this phenomenon of people online offering advice that's really not well-intentioned or with any amount of education to back it up. Um, so we, I, I generally just try to talk to our patients and educate them a bit, uh, see where they are and what they're really anchored to. And I, I know I'm not going to be able to convince everybody. So my goal is really to reduce harm and, and you know, put them on a... a have them do the things that I don't think are going to hurt them. Yeah. Well, well said. Okay. Here's another good one from Robert. Yu at Goya's house. Uh, also on Twitter, fungal infections that give them nightmares. What's the Ebola of the fungal infections? What's the, what's the, the thing that scares you as an ID doc studying fungus? Ooh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, the, the things that are hardest to treat right now are probably things like fusarium. So fusarium is what grows on your strawberries when they're going bad. Okay. But for most of us, that's of just no consequence. But our patients that have no neutrophils, no white blood cells in the hospital after chemotherapy, when they get fusarium infections, there's almost nothing we can do. They're just completely resistant to the antifungals we have uh, currently available for the most part. And why? Why is this fungus already resistant? Well, you know, it was mentioned earlier, we get penicillin from penicillium. A lot of the antibiotics we get, we've gotten from fungi. Well, a lot of the antifungals we have, we've also gotten from fungi. They have to live in the environment on a, you know, dead tree log and outcompete one another. So they're already exposed to antifungals in the environment because they've, you know, their competitor has made those. So fusarium is the one that is, when patients have that, we, you know, we really don't have a lot to offer. There's a there's some other infections that are very resistant as well, which I won't go into, but that's probably the one if it really adapted to causing infection in a wider range of people would, would really uh, be pretty scary in the hospital. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't cause zombies to appear, but it would be a terrible, terrible thing that would cause like the next wave of plague. So I, I see the concern there. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that, that's one that we do. We do lose sleep over that, right? Because it, it's hard to tell a patient like, hey, we don't have anything to offer. Like, this is resistant to everything. We're going right. to do our best. But, you know, the odds aren't really in your favor here. Side question to this. Is the danger when we're talking about uh, it spreading to the populace writ large that people are going to get exposed to the to the like all of a sudden, the, okay, the strawberry batch that got sent to one city is tainted and a whole bunch of people ate it and that's how they got it. Or are these the sorts of things where like a person can get it and because they have it, they become a carrier that can then uh, distribute that illness to somebody else? Is this something I can catch from someone? Yeah, I mean, the, the ones that people can catch right now are usually things like toenail fungus, athlete's foot, right? Things that are just on your skin and they might cause some cosmetic problems, but generally, you know, they're not going to cause a big issue. They're not going to invade your skin and go to your bloodstream, things like that. Um, so those, you know, there's a bit of a, I guess you could say they're contagious in that way. Like a lot of those skin fungi come from your, your pets. They hop up on your couch or on your, on your bed, right? They, they walk around outside barefoot and then they, they, 
give it to you because you lay down on, on your bed or your couch and get it. The more invasive ones like fusarium, a bad batch of strawberries, that's, you know, that's kind of hard to speculate how that could work. Um, I mean, you, you catch them mostly through breathing them in or mm -hmm. patients get fusarium on their toenails. And then when their immune system tanks, it sort of spreads up from their feet. Um, so, you know, like if some horrible scenario, um, you know, that I guess we would make another movie, you know, The Last of Us, you know, uh, side sequel or whatever. The Laster um, of Us, the, the <laughs> latest of us. Uh, you know, I guess let's say thousand years in the future, we just keep getting warmer in that barrier between the environment and humans. We're all living at the same temperature, but, but we're not going to be able to adapt that quickly. You know, fungi outnumber us greatly. So in that case, I think we're gone and, and they're just continuing to simmer along without any difficulty. But um, so I have a hard time coming up with a, a theory for how that could happen, but kind of, kind of fun to think about. Yeah. Until it happens. Yeah. Um, <laughs> here's another one from CIS failed Myers Briggs at, uh, it's in Jolly, um, at Twitter. <laughs> the best part of this job is getting like world-class professional, like expert physicians on and, and having them take questions from people with Twitter handles, like at mid butt cracking McGee. <laughs> so, it's great. This is actually, is actually great. Uh, so how worried should we really be about the development of resistance to the use of azole antifungals? How worried, how worried in caps. So one of the reasons that they, fungi have become more and more resistant is, is, you know, mentioned the, the competition in nature, but we've also not really taken good lessons from what we've learned with antibiotics and livestock, right? So we used to give antibiotics to chickens because they'd grow faster, right? You could turn a whole flock of chickens over for food much faster. And then antibiotics given to livestock, same kind of thing. And, you know, that kind of ended because we realized all these bacteria were becoming resistant. We haven't really followed suit with antifungals. We put antifungals down on our agricultural crops to try to increase the yield, right? Reduce disease. But a lot of those environmental antifungals are very similar in structure to the ones we give our patients in the hospital. So the more you use something in the environment, the more our patients are going to have resistance. And I think only recently have the EPA, USDA, and CDC kind of gotten together to talk through this. Because I mentioned fusarium, there's two brand new drugs that look like they have activity and work against fusarium but they've got cousins that are already just approved this year to be put down in the environment. Hmm. So we have these brand new drugs. We can't wait to be on the market and hopefully next year they will be, but they might be out of date, you know, the first time we can use them because they're already being used in the environment. So, you know, um, I think it's good news that people are paying attention finally. Um, and I'm hoping that these problems are solved, but you know, we, we need more drugs and new drugs and new approaches. Excellent. Okay, here's one that's a bit of a crossover from Amateur Kitten Mom at Cats Vax Natsec. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm just murdering these names. Um, why aren't GI fungal infections more common? I know they're in our gut microbiota, but you don't hear about candida or other infections as often as other GI bugs. I'm not sure if that's totally true. I hear about people worried about candida infections a lot, but... Fungi are supposed to like dark, damp, well-fertilized spots. So why don't we grow shrooms in our colon? I mean, obviously, I don't think she's really expecting there to be mushrooms in our colon. But why don't we see, we hear about candidal infections of the esophagus. We hear about candidal infection, uh, infections sometimes of the upper GI tract. But 
we don't really ever hear about it in the rest of our GI system. Why is that? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I mean, our immune system and the bacteria present throughout our gastrointestinal tract both sort of, you know, clamp that down and, and prevent overgrowth or invasion. Um, certainly, you know, most fungi really like oxygen in our intestines after, you know, sort of the mid small intestines, there's not a lot of oxygen there. So it's not a super great environment. I mean, some can still grow, of course. Um, but, you know, we tend to see abdominal infections again after someone's had a, a gastrointestinal surgery, right? Some of that has leaked out into the belly um, during surgery and then they, they get an infection. One of the things, though, that's really gotten a lot of press in the last two years is the association of fungi with other diseases. So cancer, um, malassezia has been sort of found in pancreatic cancer. And I think all of us are not totally sure what to do with that. And then just this last year, inflammatory bowel disease like uh, ulcerative colitis, this candida fumata looks to have fulfilled Koch's postulates or even causal to, to, to do that in a, an animal model and cause the disease so that, you know, the fungus isn't causing a fungal disease, but it's causing an autoimmune disease. So I think that we've just started to really understand this field and this really complex interaction of fungi with the human body. Another question that came up a number of times, there's actually two that came up a lot. One is about black mold. Um, is it really as concerning as uh, we're sort of taught to believe, or is it really only a subset of people who develop any sort of issue with it? Yeah, that that's a really common question we get in clinic, right? Some of these environmental service places take advantage of our patients and they'll come and test for molds in their house. But, you know, there, there's molds in every house if you just set a plate out. That's why your bread gets moldy, your, you know, your food gets moldy eventually. Um, but black mold, to me, is a sign like you have water in your house, like you've got to get that taken care of. Um, black molds themselves have really only been proven to cause problems in one paper. It was stachyboitries, one of the black molds, and it caused problems in kids where they got pulmonary hemorrhage, they cough up blood. So that said, people aren't getting active infections, but these fungi make a lot of toxins. Uh, and, and NIOSH, you know, the National Institute for Occupational Safety, you know, ha has a whole thing on their website about, they call it sick building syndrome. So people with a lot of mold in their house, they're probably breathing all these different toxins in. They make them feel bad. So they don't have a fungal infection, but they've got a lot of fungal exposure. So their mm -hmm. immune system's protecting them, but it can't protect them from all the toxins and other stuff these are making. And it's not an easy solution. And I, I would just caution people, you know, if, if a contractor or somebody is telling you this, you know, get a second opinion before you spend a lot of money uh, dealing with that. So, you know, bleach kills these 10% bleach kills fungi on your walls or in your shower. Uh, so that's a pretty easy fix. If you've got wet drywall, obviously fix the water leak first. Um, so that's kind of how we counsel our patients. But we probably see one or two people a month with that, that question. Yeah, bleach, good to kill fungus with, bad to take a bath in. <laughs> <laughs> don't drink, don't bleach kids with autism either. Please don't uh, do that. I want to uh, follow up on that question because I, I, and I don't know whether this is like some apocrypha that a friend told me and it actually is not correct at all, but I had heard something along the lines of that uh, black mold contributing to health problems is like an east coast thing that on the west coast the black mold that we get for whatever reason doesn't make us sick is this a complete is is this a friend giving me misinformation yeah i i i have uh, i don't know that i can really comment on that i mean maybe there's something i'm not aware of but um 
you know, there, there's really no difference between those different black molds here and on the East Coast. I have a pretty strong feeling if Dr. George Thompson doesn't know about it, then your friend that you jammed with the other night or where whoever that was probably doesn't have any more information than him. Rock musicians. What the hell do they know? <laughs> Goddamn rock musicians. <laughs> but you said an know. interesting thing a second ago uh, that I, I got the impression from what you said that we don't get sick from the fungus. We get sick from what the like what the fungus's output is. Uh, yeah, so that's I mean, that's people with healthy immune systems, right? If your immune system is is not doing well from medications you're on, chemotherapy, etc., you can get a fungal infection in your lungs. But if your immune system works fine, you're going to breathe those fungi in, and it's not going to like cause pneumonia. You might feel lousy, uh, and certainly exposure if those fungi are producing toxins into the air, you can be exposed to those, and those are going to make you feel bad too. Um, but, but you're not infected with one, like giving you antifungal medications is not going to do anything. I mean, when I sit here and think about it, it seems like that's kind of what all illness is, you know? That, well, like... so yeah, maybe I didn't explain it very well. So it's not even um, like you don't even have to, the fungi didn't even have to be inhaled. You might just be inhaling just the toxin hmm. or exposure to the toxin from touching it or whatever. Um, but but that that particular fungus is, you know, the cause of a true infection, like if we did a biopsy of someone's lung and we could see it, like that's just prohibitively rare, like almost never. And another thing you mentioned that I thought was very interesting, um, and I just want to sort of make sure I understand it correctly, is, you know, you said we bring in like food and to our house and we all have mold in our house and that's why you get mold on the bread if you leave it out. But let me ask you a question, like, does that mean the... I always assumed that like when you got mold on a bread, it was always there at some very low level on the bread when it got to you. And even if I left it in a totally enclosed space without access to the, the outside world, it would eventually grow fungus on it or mold. But it, are you thinking more that if your house was totally devoid of mold, which no house is, but if, if that was a situation where there was no mold, then you wouldn't grow mold on that bread. Does that make sense? My question makes sense? Yeah, I think it's both. I mean, the bread doesn't come in sterile, right? It's got mold on it already. Um, but us reaching our you know, hands in there and touching a couple extra slices probably speeds up the process too. Got you. Okay. That sounds that almost like up. you're yeah, it sounds almost like the um the process you're describing is is like condensation forming on a glass in a, you know, like a warm room that it's like you get water on the outside of the glass, not because the glass itself is leaking water, but because water in the atmosphere is touching the glass and is is clinging to it. That was beautiful, man. That was fucking beautiful. I would like you to make that. Just for the radio there. audience, they were nodding. So Yeah, we were nodding along because it sounded fucking smart. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, last, last thing for you, uh, George. We talked about the wellness space a lot. It's something we have to address constantly on this show. Uh, of all, in, in when people talk about mold in Canada, a lot of this stuff gets thrown into the wellness space for people to make a lot of money off the people who are concerned about their mm -hmm. health. Uh, what's what's the, the biggest grift you see out there? Or what's the most concerning grift that you see out there currently? So we actually looked into this a few years ago, was very unpopular. So when the state laws for cannabis changed, we saw a big increase in mold infections in our leukemia lymphoma patients. So when we really investigated that, 
a lot of these patients had turned to cannabis for their nausea, you know, pain from chemotherapy, the nerve pain with some of the, the agents. But um, so we investigate, you know, where does cannabis really come from in this unregulated, right? There's no like FDA warning on a, you know, you can't buy a carton of cannabis cigarettes right, that has the Surgeon General's warning on the side. So these come from anywhere, the cannabis that people get. So we, you know, we really explored this and we ended up going down to a cannabis dispensary in Berkeley uh, and they gave us access to all of their samples. We cultured them. They all have mold on them. They all have bacteria on them, some of which are drug resistant. And we really tried to ring the alarm like, hey, if you're nauseous and vomiting and, you know, have a lot of cancer associated side effects, we don't blame you at all for wanting to use cannabis, but you've got to do it in a safe way. And unfiltered cannabis, you're just putting mold and bacteria directly into your lungs mm. and your immune system already doesn't work because of the chemotherapy um, we got a lot of pushback from that. It was very unpopular. Because uh, people like assumed was, you were like like anti-marijuana. Yeah. And like I could care less if people do that or not. That's totally up to them. Right. We just want to do it safely. So we're like, just cook it, like put it in the oven and a brownie and eat it or eat a gummy or whatever else. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that was very unpopular. I do think that the winds have kind of shifted. And, you know, we, we tell our patients in the hospital, you can't have a potted plant in your room. You know, you can't take flowers to a cancer patient because they're covered in fungi. But we've ignored that they're directly inhaling this stuff to deal with their pain. And in some cases, physicians are even prescribing that. So that was really sort of an up uphill, upstream battle. But I, right. I think the momentum has really shifted and we've convinced people that, you know, if they want to do it, fine, but right. do it safely. Absolutely. Yeah, really well said. I think there is a big part of the general public when whenever we talk about marijuana, they assume it's coming from a place of us being like, you shouldn't smoke pot because it's bad, it's evil or whatever. Like there's some moral thing that we put on it. But if we do talk about marijuana or absence from marijuana, it's for particular people for a good reason. For example, my field, there's cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, a GI mm -hmm. disorder that wherein people, there's a certain subset of people who do pot that they have an a, a unfortunate reaction towards. So it always comes, it always, I always have to start that conversation the same way, which is like, I am absolutely fine with pot in general. It's just that for some people, it doesn't work, you know, that it, it makes things worse. And it becomes a really hard conversation because they're so used to doctors being like, you shouldn't smoke pot for just because it's pot. You know what I mean? And that's something we have to really work against. It, it, yeah. sounded, it sounded a second ago. You said something about, um, uh, oh, cook it in a brownie, cook it, you know, whatever. It sounded almost like you were, uh, I, I can't think of anybody who's like, oh, I went down to the weed store and I got my weed and now I'm going to just sit here and eat it like I'm eating kale chips or something like that. You always cook it. You either light it on fire or you put it in a brownie or something like that. Um, but you're saying even that doesn't wind up killing whatever is in it. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, these companies have asked us, should we uh, irradiate it? We're like, well, we don't really have any comments on that. Like, that's not for us to decide. Um, you know, people had thought, oh, can I put it in a hookah? Is there a water filter? Um, you know, it, the cigarette temperatures. So you actually can look through the literature from the 1930s and the tobacco industry studied all of this. And so a water filter is not effective. So fungal spores are hydrophobic. So they just kind of pop right back up on the other side of the water filter. Um, and then the temperature at the end is not hot enough to kill it. And you're going to, you, you know, the, the 
the smoke you breathe in is not damaging to your lungs at that temperature, right? So you've entrained air and you can, you can certainly suck in any of the fungal spores that are present. Uh, and so we've seen a lot of infections we think are related to cannabis. Uh, and we've published all of that. Uh, the most recent paper with the CDC looking at a national data set of, of patients with and without cannabis use and what are their rates of fungal infections. That's fascinating. I does that no same does that same heating principle apply to toasting your bread or like taking your strawberries and putting them in a compote as opposed to yeah. eating them raw? But you're eating those, right? Your gastric acid kills a lot of that stuff. No, no one like uh, inhales their toast, <laughs> so uh, okay. or strawberries, right? So. Um, so we think that's the big difference. Um, and, you know, our goal really, again, is just to protect people. Uh, you know, they're going to do it. That's totally fine. That's that's up to them. Uh, we just don't want our high-risk patients, you know, that have no immune system to do it. Yeah. No, absolutely. Eat your weed, folks. <laughs> Bake it and eat it. Uh, since we're talking about psychotropic substances and we're talking about fungi, it seems natural to bring up psilocybin. Is there, I mean, are we talking about just a completely different fungal strain altogether that doesn't do anything to us except make the walls move and stuff? Or is there like danger of a fungal infection now that uh, psilocybin uh, consumption is much more prevalent and is much more like societally mm -hmm. accepted? Yeah, I mean, I, there's a lot of interest right now in, you know, uh, mushrooms and things like that for what other medicinal products could be extracted from them. You know, we can do what's called metabolomics pretty cheaply now and, you know, squeeze down a mushroom or a plant and, and extract everything present and then it'll tell us exactly the chemicals uh, that are present in those different compounds. So, um, you know, there, that's a lot of uh, interest in, in drug finding, you know, finding new drugs um, from sources in the environment. Um, but, you know, most of the hallucinogenic agents really, they don't have a lot of, you know, medical, like there's not a prescription, you know, process for us. So uh, that's not one we get involved in too much. Um, this is the Christmas season and the Amanita mushroom, right? That little red one with white dots that everybody's been taught they're poisonous. That's actually thought. Yeah, the one that makes you grow to, to twice yeah. your size. Yeah, yeah, right. So Alice in Wonderland is kind of mixed in that. But it, it, it's at least thought that that plays a big role in where Santa Claus came to be, right? Like, he, you know, he's thought to be like a gnome and then he got kind of those same colors, right? So the, the history of Christmas and that Amanita mushroom are kind of wrapped together a little bit. Are you saying Santa is a hallucination? <laughs> it's one of the theories is that's kind of where uh, the process uh, was intermixed, right? With, with legends and lore and then these red mushrooms kind of crossed over and gave him his colors and... Um, Part of the mythology that is you're not talking about amanita phylloides the death cap mushroom you're talking about the I, the amanita that we think about when you see super mario jump up and grab a mushroom exactly. and grow to twice yep. the size yeah super mario mushrooms are are thought to be part of the inspiration for the traditional santa claus that is awesome <laughs> that is awesome <laughs> Um, and in reality, taking those taking psilocybin doesn't make you twice as big. It just makes everything else seem like it's twice as small or twice as big. Depends on the moment. I don't know. I once when I was in college, uh, took some mushrooms and then attempted to pay for a slice of pizza using my driver's license. So uh, <laughs> I feel I feel like we're going to have to do a whole we've talked about it before on the show, but I think it's time for us to do another 
full dedicated episode to magic mushroom psilocybin and the research behind it so we i think we have to come back to that topic because i feel like that's a big one to 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 get into but george before we head out anything else you want to share with us one of the other things that people might find interest find interesting is you know these these wildfires in california that we really dealt with the last few years and this was on the tail of, of dealing with the sort of um the cannabis stuff that I talked about, but I, I noticed outside, you know, there's just soot everywhere with these wildfires. And I thought, I bet that there's fungi living in that bacteria. So we started culturing this because again, it's just from dead decaying material, right? The fires have burned up or, and, and fires create their own weather, right? We've always heard that in earth science growing up. Um, and so I'd called down to the national fire center and turned out several other people were thinking about this same topic and they they even were flying drones over wildfires. Hmm. And they found that that air, that updraft, actually entrains air from all the surrounding vegetation. And, and fungi and bacteria are just omnipresent in those samples. And so we've become pretty convinced that fires are one of the ways that, that fungi specifically can move around the world. Um, and, and so we've proven that now in, in drone samples and found a lot of different bad fungi. Um, so wearing a mask in fire season is probably not a terrible idea. Uh, you don't, you're not going to breathe in the bad stuff, right? But our, our cancer patients, again, are not going to breathe in all the fungi present in high uh, concentrations during that time. That's a nice little House of Pod exclusive. Fantastic. Thanks. Thank you for that. That's nice. Um, I want you to come back, George, for so many reasons. And we'll talk about more mushroom-related stuff in the future. But I also I think you got to come back for Halloween because I see from looking online some of the stuff and talks you've given you've talked about the origins of not only christmas but halloween and so we're gonna have to get you back for our annual halloween episode is, is that uh can i get a guarantee now that you'll oh return? yeah that'd be super fun that's a fun talk to give all right good all right so uh anything you want to plug before we close out george uh no i mean i think well i guess yes so um the people in, that are in your life whose immune systems don't work, be more careful around those folks, right? If you've got an aunt or uncle with that's getting chemotherapy or on a medication, to knock down their immune system, like just be wise around it. Like don't, don't drag a bunch of stuff over for Christmas, you know, no, live animals and all these different things, but like, just try to take care of your family members whose immune systems are knocked down. Oh man, that's so cool. Usually when I ask for plugs, like we're, we're plugging like our dumb social media stuff. He's like plugging people's <laughs> no, lives. <what>? We absolutely <laughs> do each other and party on dude. Yeah. yeah. That's right. <laughs> oh man. Mark, uh, anything to anything? I mean, I, you have a lot. I, can you tell people again, where to find you, where they can actually physically see you playing music? You can physically see me playing music very frequently at the Varnish and Historic Core of downtown Los Angeles. It's in the back of Cole's French Dip, one of the inventors of the French Dip. It wasn't in France. I don't know how that works out. Uh, yeah, I run a nice little jazz program there, and they make great cocktails, and the live music program is quite excellent. Sorry, I want to plug your vinyl album. Yeah, you can also listen to my original recording recorded at The Varnish uh, on Spotify or YouTube Music or Apple Music or whatever it is that you use. It's called The Crowd at the V, live at The Varnish. Uh, and uh, all of the songs are original and were all recorded at the, uh, w within the actual confines in The Varnish. It was 
very nicely recorded. The audio sounds really great. And if you have a record player, I also sell it on vinyl. And if you come up to me at the Varnish, I can just give you, not give you, I can sell you a copy. That's right. Don't give that shit away. It's too valuable. It's really excellent music. I listen to it. I would listen to it even if Mark wasn't such a delightful human being. George, a real pleasure having you on. Really fun. Uh, so knowledgeable. Thank you for sharing that with us. Really appreciate it. And I look forward to getting you back on um, for Halloween or sooner. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you all both. And Dr. Hada, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Nailed it, buddy. Bye. Ooh, look at you. Fucking half, bro. With the what? the math check out the big brain on mark 1963 won that hard 2023 won that hard i mean i was being mostly sarcastic you asshole how you doing fuck you this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice diagnosis or treatment please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns the opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.